Baruch Hashem, it's wonderful to be back in England. This is my first time back in uh, the United Kingdom since uh, since before COVID. So, Baruch Hashem, it's good to be back. And everyone's complaining about the weather. They're saying, oh, we're so sorry you came when it was cold. This is, this is nothing. I live in New York and I grew up in Chicago. This is... This is very tame weather, Baruch Hashem. Um, okay, so a little bit behind the scenes. A few minutes ago, Rabbi Dubov comes over to me and he says, let's go dance. I said, Rabbi, you flew me all this way to give a speech. You want me to speak or do you want me to dance? He said, I want you to dance. <laughs> I said, hold on a second. You know, I didn't come here to dance. I came here to speak. So he said, I want to share with you some advice that I got when I spoke at the Kinnis. He said, they told me, I don't know who told you. He didn't say who told me, but whoever it was, it was quotable. He said, they told me, no one's going to remember what you said, but they're going to remember how you said it. So I'm just going to make up a bunch of stuff for the next hour because you're not going to remember what I said anyway. <laughs> Maybe tell some jokes, tell you about my flight over here. But the truth is, what you said to me was profound because that is the entire message of Hakel. The entire message of Hakel is it's not about information. It's not about what you say and the words you choose. It's about the emotional energy. It's about the lived experience. That is what emblazons itself in our memories and gives us a vital connection. And it's, it's interesting because as Jews, we study a lot. A lot. We're always learning Torah and we're teaching Torah and you can't go to a Jewish event without having some rabbi get up and speak. It's unavoidable. We're always with the more and more information and teaching and learning and learning and teaching. And it's true. It's so important. But at the same time, it's about the experience. It's about the energy in the room. The dancing and the smiles on people's faces, the intangible quality, not the words. And uh, the truth is, this goes back to our formative moment when we became the Jewish people. You know, up until that moment, we were Israelites. We were a, we were a Semitic group of tribes who had a shared uh, history and genealogy, slavery in Egypt, and liberation. But when did we become the Jewish people? At Sinai. Maimon Har Sinai. When we stood at the foot of Mount Sinai. And the Torah was given to us. And what happened when the Torah was given to us? Very interesting. It wasn't that we were taught Torah. We didn't begin studying Torah. We experienced 
We lived something. Each and every one of us, man, woman, and child, equally, everyone there saw the sounds and we heard the sights. We had that synesthetic experience. So it's very interesting. From the moment we became a nation and from the moment we were given the Torah, it wasn't by studying Torah as, as, as information, but it was having an experience, a shared experience, living something. And that shared experience made its impression on every single man, woman, and child who stood there. Now, toward the end of his life, as he was turning 120 years old, Meshur Rabbeinu, the faithful shepherd, always mindful of his flock, the Jewish people, he became very concerned. What will happen to future generations who didn't stand at Sinai? They'll be able to study Torah, yes. Jews were always studying Torah. But how will they have that life-changing experience that everyone who stood at Sinai had? So on the last day of his life, Moshe Rabbeinu said, I have a mitzvah for you, it's called hakel, which means gathering. And it's important that you do this regularly, oh, about every seven years. You'll do it in the year after the sabbatical year, the agricultural rest year. And you'll get everyone together, the entire Jewish nation, you'll come to the Beis Hamikdash, the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, and the king will read to you from the Torah, and there'll be a big crowd there, and you'll get pushed, and you'll get, you get smushed, and you'll have an experience, and that experience will renew and will, will, will refresh that feeling of lived Yiddishkeit, not just a book with holy information, but an experience that I lived with my senses, that I saw, that I heard, that I felt. Something sensorial, something kinesthetic. And so that was one of the last things that Meshur Rabbeinu took care of before he left this earthly plane. So Hakil really is about the importance of having an experience. Hence, the dancing probably being more impactful than any words that I happen to say tonight. So you are 100% correct. Now, you mentioned that General Shimi Weinbaum is conducting the children's program right now simultaneously. So since my friend Shimmy is not here, I would like to talk about him. Um, Shimmy is a wild guy. And he makes people do wild things. Recently, he made me do something absolutely ridiculous. I don't know if, I mean, today the world is very small, so... With WhatsApp and everything, things travel quickly. <sighs> Shimi calls me up before Sukkot, and he says, I'm doing a hakel 
in uh, Crown Heights in front of 770. They're shutting down Eastern Parkway. There's going to be thousands of people there. And I want to do a real hot kill. And he said, I want a hot kill that is a lived experience. I want everyone there to remember what, what, they, what they saw, what they heard. I want it to, to leave an impression for a lifetime. I said, that sounds wonderful. That's great. He says, you know, like they say, show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. I don't want to tell them about Hakel. I want to show because Hakel really is about an experience. So I want to show. I said, you're right. You're totally right. Educationally, that's, that's what you ought to do. You got to show them. He says, so I want to depict some things to them that they should really feel like they're there. I said, that's a great idea. He, uh, I think we, I, I forget which one of us came up with it, but uh, we said, we're going we're gonna to do Matan Torah. We're going to have the Koilei Subrokim. We're going to have the, the thunder. And we're going to have a big... And actually, it did rain that night as well, but we had a soundtrack with the thunder, thundering, and it was like with the bass and shake with, from the speakers and shaking people. You could feel the, the thunder. And he said, and we're going to actually have a guy dress up as a king and come out just like the king at Hakel, and he's going to show them what it looked like when the king would come out with his, with his personal Sefer Torah, and we're going to act out the whole thing. I said, that's a great idea. You should do that. You should show them what it looked like. You just got to find somebody to dress up like a king. <laughs> so he says, you, you're going to do it, Chase. You're going to dress. I said, no, 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 no. I'll, I'll, I'll give a class. <laughs> I'll explain it. He said, no, no, no. This is Hakel. We don't need anyone to explain anything. This is not a class. This is a lived experience. No more pretty words. Are you ready to put your money where your mouth is and dress up in a costume and give the kids, kids, <laughs> it's all for the kids. That's always the dirty trick, it's for the kids. Are you ready to give the kids and the kids of all ages a lived experience? Are you ready to do it? And I said, I said this is not fair what you're doing to me. Basically, what am I supposed to say to him? He was right. He was right, so I said, fine. And I did it. And I, yeah, he got me in a whole costume with a robe and a crown and a, everything. And okay, so my kids were very impressed. But <laughs> my kids liked it. They said, "Tati, you were the king. We saw the king. It was you." So yeah, 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 yeah. So my kids were impressed for a while. Yeah. Um, But he's absolutely right. Show, don't tell. There's a time for words and there's a time for an experience. You know, there was a, a shliach, a chosid, Rabbi Zalman Posner, all of a show. Now, Yutes Kislev is coming up, and we're going to start the Tanya over. So uh, just to give you an understanding of who this chassid was, he was a great intellectual, a scholar, an author, a speaker. And uh, if you know the uh, section of Tanya called Igeres Hachuva, he translated that into English. 
So he was a serious thinker, a thought leader, you might even call him. That's the 2022 term for it. At any rate, he used to come once a year to 770 for the Rebbe's Fabrengen, Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamus. I, I believe it's because he was in the, I mean, he was in the times of uh, the Friedrich Rebbe, so obviously Yud Beis Yud Gimel Tamus is the Friedrich Rebbe's birthday and, and day of liberation from prison, so that had a connection to him being from that, from that generation, so that was always when he would come in. At any rate, so he came in one year, and uh, there was a lot of pushing, like by the Rebbe Fabrengen. There was, <laughs> there were more people who wanted to be there than there was space for people. So there was a lot of pushing, and uh, so he he got an idea. He he figured out that instead of as a weekday Fabrengen, not Shabbos, so there were speakers. There was a PA system. So he got an idea. He said, instead of going and trying to fight for a spot and getting smushed, and I'll spend the entire time barely being able to hear and being distracted with trying to just not get pushed over, I'll go to the back, and I'll be comfortable, and I'll stand by the speaker, and I'll be able to listen to the entire Fabrenge, and I'll actually be able to appreciate it and understand what the Rebbe is saying. And I want to emphasize again, we're talking about a scholar. We're talking about somebody who could actually follow and appreciate the flow of the Fabrenge. The Rebbe's sikhas were very complex and scholarly, and not everybody was able to follow. But Rebbe Posner was such a chos that he was able to follow, and it would really be a much more... Um, stimulating experience for him if he could just focus on the Rebbe's words instead of fighting physically to have his spot. And that's what he did. And apparently at that Fabrengen, in the middle of the Fabrengen, during the Nigunim, while the Siddim were singing, the Rebbe asked twice, not once, but twice, Vu Zalman. The Rebbe asked Zalman Posner's father, then his father-in-law. Who is Zalman? And they didn't know. The next day, Zalman Posner had uh, Yechidus. And then I asked him pointedly, <laughs> Where were you yesterday? So he explained what he did and why he did it. He said, I felt that rather than pushing and not hearing, let me not push and let me hear. And I'll be able to follow the Rebbe's Fabrengen. The Rebbe said to him, Oive, Salman, one time a year, once a year, you have a chance, you have an opportunity. To push away, to expel the, the crassness of the body. And you give up your chance, you stand far away. That's the story. 
Not a dramatic story, but I think a very, very, very instructive story. What was the point of the Rebbe's Fabreng? The Rebbe's teaching Torah. Seemingly the point is to study, to learn, to understand the Rebbe's teachings. That's what I would think. <laughs> but what did the Rebbe tell this scholarly chassid who was able to follow and appreciate the sikhs? He told him that's not the point of the Fabrengen. What's the point of the Fabrengen? I'll use 2022 language. The Fabrengen is a sensorial experience. It's supposed to ground you. It's supposed to give you a physical bodily experience. It's supposed to be kinesthetic, not intellectual. It's not about information. It's about your body. And the therapy happens to be getting smushed by other chassidim when you can't hear what the, what the Rebbe is saying. Counterintuitive. Absolutely counterintuitive. Now, the next day, when the transcripts start coming out, then you can sit down and study. And the Rebbe edits some talks, and they're published, and we study them very, very carefully, and we study them and restudy them, and we study them again and again and again. I say, Lekut Sichas is the book that keeps getting smarter. Because you... Every time you go back to a sikha from the Rebbe that you've already learned, there's always a new revelation. But that's after the Fabrengen. The point of the Fabrengen wasn't study. The point of the Fabrengen was the physical experience, to get smushed and not to hear. Sort of like Matan Torah. <laughs> was not to study Torah, but to have a physical shared experience of Torah. Or Hakel was not a Torah class. It was a physical shared experience of living Judaism, of Torah. The Rambam says very interesting things about the Hakel experience. The king is reading from, from the Torah and he says, who's going to be there? Everyone's there. There are Chachomim Gedolim, great scholars, great sages. They should be there. They should listen to the reading. There are simple people. He says, Gedim, new converts who haven't learned Hebrew yet. They don't understand the words. They should be there. There are people who physically can't manage to hear. They should also be there. This is all described in the Rambam. What does that mean? Think about it. There are Chachomim Gedolim. There are scholars for whom listening to a reading of the Torah is not scholarship for them. They can't learn anything from it. They're on a much higher level. What are they? They're, they're in Cheder, where they're learning Psukim of, of Chumash. These are scholars. So for them, it's, it's certainly not a Torah class on their level to, be, to stand there and listen to, to read the, the reading of Torah verses. And conversely, the people who don't understand Hebrew at all on the other extreme. So they can't understand what's happening. They don't follow the words. And then there's people who physically can't hear. So, so certainly they're not able to process the information. They're not able to follow the Torah reading. And yet, what are we told? It's not a bug, it's a feature. 
It's not meant to be a class. It's meant to be an experience. Tomorrow you'll sit down and you'll study Torah with the excitement that comes from having had your experience. But today you're going to live it. You're going to experience it in your body. The sights, the sounds, the pushing, the energy. There was a Jew from uh, Columbus, Ohio, or more specifically from Bexley, which is a suburb of Columbus, named uh, Gordon Zacks. And uh, I don't know if people have seen this video, but he came to the Rebbe's house in 1988 after the Rebbe Tznechaya Mushka passed away. And he came to the Rebbe's house. The Rebbe was giving dollars in his home on President Street. And the moment he stood before the Rebbe, the Rebbe be began to continue a conversation with them, with, 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 uh, with Gordon Zacks, that had left off almost 20 years earlier. They hadn't spoken, they hadn't seen each other in almost 20 years. It was 19 years, I believe. And the Rebbe sees Gordon Zacks and immediately picks up the conversation where they left off about Jewish education. And Gordon Zacks begins laughing. You can watch the video. And he laughs. He says, oh, Rabbi, you're amazing. And the Rebbe says, what's the benefit to the community if I'm amazing? Right? Like, I'm not here to impress, basically, the Rebbe's saying. But what's the background to that story? What happened almost two decades earlier? Gordon Zacks had given a speech to uh, the United Jewish Appeal outlining how he had a vision of raising $100 million for Jewish education. In uh, 1968, $100 million was like a like billion dollars today. And somebody had shared the transcript of Gordon Zacks' speech with the Rebbe. And then the Yechidus was arranged. So Gordon Zacks walks into Yechidus. And the Rebbe says to him, Mr. Zacks, I've read your speech, and I can tell that you take good care of your mind. I'm looking at you now, and I can see that you take good care of your body. But what are you doing to take good care of your soul? And they began to have a discussion about the necessity of practical Judaism. <coughs> There were two levels of the conversation. One was about the funding, the $100 million, and how it would be spent on Jewish education. And the Rebbe was trying to explain to Gordon Zacks that Jewish education doesn't just mean ideas and concepts. It has to mean practical, lived Yiddishkeit. And uh, Gordon Zacks was resistant because he said most American Jews are not interested in traditional observance. The other level of the conversation was quite personal. The Rebbe was telling Gordon Zacks that he himself, as an individual, it's not enough that he was, he was passionate about Jewish ideas, like Jewish continuity and Jewish education. 
Those are all too abstract. It has to be grounded in, in actually living Jewishly day to day. So, the Rebbe said something I, I think is astounding, but it just shows you how the Rebbe related to everyone on their level and spoke everyone's language. The Rebbe said to Gordon Zacks, you know that book, Zorba the Greek? And apparently Gordon Zacks really liked the book Zorba the Greek. I think it was a book and a movie. So the Rebbe says, you know when Zorba is speaking to the college student, and Zorba asks the college student, what is the meaning of life? And the college student says, I don't know. I don't know the meaning of life. And Zorba says to the college student, then what good are all your books that you study if you don't even know the meaning of life, why you live? So the Rebbe said to Gordon Sachs, what good is it to be so smart if you don't have a sense of day-to-day -day purpose. You know what your problem is. You're trying to think your way to God. And you can't think your way to God. You have to live your way to God. Living Judaism. That's how you connect with Hashem. Not through deep philosophy. Mr. Zacks, I would like to offer to you an opportunity. I would like to send you one of my siddim to be your partner, your guide, basically your personal trainer, to live with you for a year and to help you to have the experience of living Jewishly as a Jew lives, day in and day out, for a year. And at the end of that year, if you find that it didn't change you, okay, so what if you lost? At least you gave it a chance. But if you find that it did change you, and as I predict, that will be what gives you that connection to, the, to, to God that you're seeking through philosophy and thinking, then obviously this is the greatest thing you could ever hope for because this is, you're trying to get something, but you're going, out, going about it all wrong. This is the way to actually achieve it. Can't think your way to God. You have to experience it. So you know what Gordon Zacks told the Rebbe? Can't make this up. He said, I told the Rebbe, I'll think about it. <laughs> That's what he said. I told the Rebbe, I'll think about it. So, uh, you want to guess if it ever happened? <laughs> I'll think about it. Yeah, I'll think about it. So, no, it never happened. But what was the Rebbe sharing with Gordon's acts? Sharing with him a profound secret that although we are the people of the book, although you, you don't find another religion, where the layman 
is as studious as the Jewish layman. In other cultures, the clergy studies the scripture, and that's it. And everyone else just asks questions. But uh, among Jews, traditionally, even the simple Jew, even the cobbler and the, the, the wagon driver, they had their share, at least they sat by a class, they studied something. So we're an intellectual people, we're known for it. We're known for it. And yet, that is not the foundation of our identity. And that is not the origin of our peoplehood. And that's not what defined us from the, from the very first moment when we, when we became Jews. It was not Torah study, it was a lived experience. Standing there in awe and, and seeing sounds and hearing sights. And the mountain is smoking and there's flowers growing from the mountain. And the, the voice of God is booming. Lived experience. Because we are souls and bodies. And that's not by accident. That's by design. The souls in heaven, what do they do? What do souls in heaven do? They study Torah all the time. They have no needs anymore. So all they do is study Torah. And they have absolute pleasure and delight from the Torah that they're studying. It's very pleasurable if you're a soul to study Torah. And, and, and the way they study it, it's the secrets, it's the depth, it's the hidden dimension of it that you can't understand properly while you're still in a body. So the souls in heaven are having an amazing time plumbing the depths of Hashem's wisdom. But you know what? There's nothing like coming into the physical world, being embodied as dangerous as it is, scary and frustrating for the soul as it is, as jarring as the experience is to adjust to. There's nothing like coming into the physical world and being embodied. And if you'll forgive me for being a little bit philosophical for a moment, I'll try to explain to you the difference. It's the difference between subjectivity and objectivity. Subjectivity is how I process the experience. The impression that it makes on me. <laughs> objectivity is the reality. It is what it is. Whether you appreciate it or you don't appreciate it. So, uh, like they say, if a tree falls in the forest and there's no one there to hear it, does it really make a sound? Yes, it makes a sound, because that's the objective reality. It doesn't matter if you're there to observe it. Subjectively, okay, that's a different thing, but objectively, it is what it is. Souls in heaven have a subjective experience of godliness. That's why there's different levels. Because this soul can handle this level of understanding Torah, and another soul can handle a higher level of understanding Torah. Subjective means, like right now, I'm talking, 
hundreds of people in the room, and, and everyone's hearing it a little bit differently based on your background, based on your experiences, based on what you already know. Right, that's why we make a, a blessing. If you see 600,000 Jews, the blessing you make is blessed is Hashem who knows the secrets. What secrets? The secrets that every single person has a different outlook on reality. That no two people have the same way of processing reality. So that's, sub that's subjective. That's subjectivity. Objective means, irregardless of what you think you saw, irregardless if you know you saw or you don't know what you saw, it happened. The soul in heaven has a lot of subjective appreciation for godliness, and it's profoundly pleasurable for the soul in heaven. The soul in a body has most of that taken away from it, the body is, a, is, a, is an impediment, it's an obstacle. It covers up our spiritual sensitivity, so we don't feel, we don't feel that profound, acute sensitivity. We get bombarded and distracted by other stimuli, physical stimuli. So the subjective experience of godliness takes a real beat when you're embodied. But you know what we gain through coming into a physical body? An objective experience of godliness. An objective experience of godliness. That you do a mitzvah, and whether you feel it or not, whether you appreciate it or not, it has infinite value. Which is a mind-blowing concept. A finite act with infinite value. I take this small action in this place at this time, very limited by space and time. And yet, how much is it worth? How much is a mitzvah worth? Any mitzvah? It's infinitely valuable. Now, I don't really appreciate that. And if I did appreciate it, it would knock my soul out of my body. And in fact, sometimes not only I don't appreciate it, but the opposite. Maybe I've been, I even resent it. Can we, can we be truthful? Can we admit it? Sometimes it feels like a burden. Sometimes it's difficult for my body. And that's the whole beauty of it. The beauty of it is the objective reality does not depend whatsoever on your subjective experience. So in other words, up there in heaven without a body, you get to see godliness. Down here you lose that, but you get to be godly. You get to show up as an extension of Hashem. You're not aware of it. You don't feel it. Doesn't excite you. Doesn't matter. Irrelevant. You're doing it. You are it. Hashem has a will that a mitzvah be done. And you act as his arms and his legs. You become his body. You embody him. And you cause that his will should take place, objectively speaking, in the physical world. There's nothing more objective than that. It's not, so, it's not subject to interpretation. It's not a spiritual abstraction. It's a physical thing that happened here, at this time, at this place. You put on the tefillin. You, you lit the Shabbos candles. 
So the whole idea of souls and bodies and the whole idea of the purpose of creation is that we have an objective experience of Judaism, which means it doesn't matter how much you appreciate it or understand it or follow what's going on. It's happening. It's happening for real. Which is why when Zalman Posner wanted to understand what the Rebbe was saying, the Rebbe told him, ah, that's not the point right now. Later you'll study. But I want you to have an experience right now. I want you to get smushed. I want your body to feel it. Because that's really happening. Whatever you're understanding from the Sikha, that's subjective. But the fact that you're getting smushed, that's objective. That's real. And in fact, the whole foundation of everything you'll understand is that you had that experience. You know, there, there's an expression in education. Tell me, I forget. Show me, I remember. Involve me, I understand. The irony is that having a lived experience actually enhances the ability to understand at a later point. But you can't reverse it. It doesn't work the other way. It's understanding doesn't bring to an objective experience. The objective experience brings you to a greater sensitivity for understanding. In other words, what I'm saying is, if you come here and you have an experience, you see a room packed full of people, that itself is an experience. You don't do this every Sunday afternoon. Or do you? You do this every No, you don't. I don't know. London's a happening place. But you don't do this every Sunday afternoon. You get everyone packed together, and there's the music, and there's the dancing. And some guy speaks, and it doesn't matter what he said. What matters is the emotional energy in the room, the experience. You're not going to forget this. You're not going to forget this, and your kids won't forget this. Because you got up, you got out of the house. I know, 2022, nobody leaves the house anymore. Especially after COVID. We all, that's it, we got used to staying home. But you get up, you get out of the house, you bring your body, you bring your body for the objective experience. You change the scenery a little bit. Change up the scenery a little bit. And that has an incredible impact on your relationship with Hashem more than if you would sit and study Torah. Not to the exclusion of studying Torah, but what I'm saying is getting out of the house, changing up the scenery, getting into a room full of people and having a real experience. At school, what we used to call it a field trip. You know what they call it in English, a field trip? Yeah? Like instead of having class today, you get on the bus and you go out, you go to the museum or something, called a field trip. Go to the zoo, call a field trip. Yeah, that's what they call it in England. I'm saying we come into class and say, students, close the books. We're not going to study today. We're going... On a field trip. And I want to tell you something. You may not remember 99% of what your teacher taught you that year. But you remember the field trips you took. You remember who you sat next to on the bus. You remember where you sat when you had your lunch. It was right next to the fountain. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Because 
It's an experience. And then when you have the experience, like we're having right now, ah, then you go back to your study, and studying has so much more meaning. Now, there's another aspect of hakel, which I didn't speak about at all, but it's, it's not a separate point. It's the same point, if you, if you understand it properly. And that's Jewish unity. Hakel is about getting together as many Jews as possible, getting a group together. Hakel literally means gathering. So what's the deal? Is Hakel about lived experience or is it about gathering? You know the answer? Is it this or is it this? Yes. Like any Jewish question, we say, is it A or is it B? C, right? It's both. That's always the Jewish answer. So how can it be both? I'll explain to you very clearly. At Hakel... Like we said, it was just like Mount Toyota, just like when they stood at Sinai. Everyone was there. Everyone had the experience. If it would have been a class, you know how they would have done it? They would have said, you go to that class, advanced class. Uh, people who can't understand Hebrew, we're going to have an adapted class. Uh, you, you go to that class. Go to that class, they would have broken up in groups. Because that's what you do when you're explaining things and you're trying to give people a subjective experience. So you break them into groups appropriate to their level. Just like in Ghanaian, where the souls in paradise are learning Torah, so they have different levels. This level of paradise and this level, because they're, they're learning Torah. So when you're learning and having a subjective experience, you have to go to a different level appropriate to, to your capacity. But if it's an objective experience, the objective experience is the great equalizer. Why should we break into groups? To the contrary. Let it all be one giant group. Because here's the deal. Like you said, you're so right. No one's going to remember what I said. It's not important what I said. Because at the end of the day, my words are not the experience. You know what the experience is? You're already doing it. The fact that you brought your bodies here is the experience. So the fact that one person will understand more. One person will understand less. And another person is scrolling the phone right now. That's fine. It's fine. Could be someone who doesn't even understand English right now. It's fine. We're all having the same objective experience. We all brought our bodies. We're all in the same space. And the same thing is happening to all of us. Regardless of what we are subjectively processing and judging and interpreting about that experience. And that's the beauty of the group. And the more diverse the group, the greater the point is made that it has nothing to do with subjectivity. You know, there was a, an interesting character who used to uh, frequent the Rabbis Fabrengs. In the, in the 80s. And uh, they called him the coach. His real name was uh, Abe. Abe Saxon. 
And he lived in Long Island. And uh, I'll tell you the story how I, I heard it. I heard it from an Englishman. I heard it from Yossi Lu who told me this. Because apparently Yossi Lu used to sometimes have to arrange to bring the coach to the Fabrengi. You ever heard this, Yossi? This guy, the coach, was an actual coach. Um, he was the coach of the Harlem Globetrotters wow. basketball team. And uh, just so you understand, he did not understand a word of Hebrew or Yiddish. In fact, there's a story about him he actually went to the Rebbe crying that he cannot read Aleph base. He was an older man already. He couldn't read Aleph base. The Rebbe comforted him and told him he should start learning. But I just want you to understand, we're talking about a very, unfortunately, assimilated Jew who lived in Long Island, and they used to uh, broadcast the Rebbe's Fabregnant on satellite, WLCC. And he was watching a satellite Fabregnant, he could not understand what the was saying. But he saw the Rebbe's face, the Rebbe's holy face. And he was drawn to want to be there in that physical space. He didn't know what was happening. He couldn't follow one word. But he knew he had to be there. So he came to 770, you know, he used to scroll by on the bottom of the screen. 770, Eastern Parkway, Lubavitch World Headquarters. So that's it. He, uh, he shows up to 770, Eastern Parkway, Lubavitch World Headquarters. And he walks into uh, 770. And he starts asking people, where's the rabbi? <laughs> like, Which rabbi? The rabbi. You know, the rabbi I saw on my TV. So they said, the rabbi? He said, yeah, yeah, that's all I want to see. They said, yeah, I mean, you can't just, it doesn't work like that. He says, but I have to meet him. So somebody had pity on him and said, look, it's not really possible to schedule an audience. This was in the 80s already. And uh, it was before dollars, it was after Yechidus. So they told him, look, when the Rebbe goes to Mincha, the afternoon prayer, you can, uh, you can try to go over to the Rebbe. And we're not promising you that you'll be able to speak to the Rebbe, but you can try. So he said, great, no problem. And it was like, Nine in the morning or something. So you, you had to wait five hours. And uh, so he waited. He hung out in 770. And then the Rebbe came out. And so, you know, when the Rebbe would move from place to place in 770, generally people would give the Rebbe a lot of room. Like, even if it, even if it was terribly packed, Miraculously, the sea would split. They would give the Rebbe room. And generally speaking, people would make their way to stand clear of the Rebbe. Definitely not to get in the Rebbe's way, 
or even necessarily to attract attention to themselves. Like, people would stand back. But this guy, he was too innocent, he was too pure to know that kind of protocol. All he knew was he was there to see the rabbi whose face he had seen on TV. And now this rabbi comes out and he recognizes this is, this is the rabbi I came for. And he comes running right up to the rabbi. <laughs> like nobody, nobody did this. Running up to the rabbi. And I mean, surprised he didn't get tackled, honestly, to be, to be honest. He went running right up to the Rebbe. And he says, very vociferously, very passionately, he says, Rabbi, my name is Abe Sachs. I'm the coach of the Harlem Globetrotters. As if that would impress the Rebbe, or that was somehow important for the Rebbe to know. It was a, I mean, it was a socially awkward situation. Now, to say that the Rebbe took it in stride and was respectful and didn't shame this person, I don't think that would surprise you at all. So that goes without saying that the Rebbe's response was very respectful and preserved this, this person's dignity. But the Rebbe's response was much, much more than that. It was actually, to my thinking, so, such an unthinkable response. Just literally unthinkable. Until you hear it, and then you have to try to make sense of it. He runs up to the Rebbe's face, I'm And the devil, without missing a beat, says, Good, I need a coach. <laughs> and continues walking to Mincha. And that was it. I need a coach. That's it. It was almost as if the devil was saying, like, What? You're the coach? Where have you been? We've been operating this whole time without a coach. You're the coach. It's like, I'm your Uber driver. I called you an hour ago. Right? You're the coach. Like, and he appointed himself to actually be a coach. And what he would do is, and he looked, he stood out like a sore thumb. First of all, everyone's wearing black and white and black hats. And, and he, he wore his, you know, he had like a windbreaker on, and a bucket hat, and he used to stand up on a bench, and he would like, coach, you know, <laughs> and he couldn't understand a word that Ebba was saying, he couldn't understand Yiddish, but he would coach, like, go, go, right, because the Ebba told him, oh, you're the coach, okay, get to work, we need a coach, I promise you. If they would have done a poll, a survey, of everyone in the Rebbe's Fabregas and asked them, guys, we would like to add some enhancements to the Fabregan experience. Does anyone have any suggestions for the suggestion box? What we could do to really take these Fabregas to the next level. I promise you, nobody 
was going to say, oh, you know what we could do? We've got a guy with a bucket hat to stand on a bench and go like this and be the coach. Nobody was going to suggest that. But this guy shows up, and then I was like, get to work. You're the coach. So that's it. He became the coach. I guess he already was the coach. That's sort of the point. That's Hakel. That's Hakel. Like in that one embodiment of this elderly Jew who couldn't read Alphase, who couldn't understand a word of Yiddish, who was drawn to 770 because he saw that had his holy face and knew that he needed to have that experience. It wasn't intellectual for him. He couldn't process any of it. He couldn't learn. didn't understand it. But he knew he needed to be there. And he knew somehow that he had a role. And he didn't have to make himself different than who he was to fit in with other people to be part of it. Somehow he understood that his being different, his being who he was, and I don't think he consciously understood this, but intuitively he was drawn to a mountain Torah experience in our generation where we don't have to homogenize everybody and make them all the same and pretend everyone's on the same level. No, to the contrary, the beauty of it, the objective experience, what makes it so godly and so real is that people of all different levels and all different backgrounds are standing together having the same experience. So if it were a class, if it were after the Fabrengen, okay, so then there's levels. Then you're talking about processing, learning, studying, understanding. Not everybody's in the same ballpark. But the Rebbe's Fabrengen was not a Torah class. It was Gilel Akus. It was a revelation of godliness. Just like Matan Torah, just like Hakel. And just like by Matan Torah, there was Mesh. And just like by Hakel, there was the king. So the devil was Moshe, the devil was the king. The great equalizer who created a space big enough to give every kind of Jew an objective experience. And even if you were a Zalman Posner who could understand the Fabrengen, you're not here to understand, you're here to get smushed. And if you're the coach and you can't understand the Fabrengen, good, you don't need to understand, go pump your fist. And that was the gift that Hashem gave our generation. The great equalizer was it didn't matter if someone was the biggest Rosh Hashiva, a Talmud Chacham, or a simple Jew who couldn't read Aleph base. All you had to do was get them to that place. Get them to the Rebbe's Fabrengen for their objective experience. It didn't matter what they understood, how much of it they understood, what part of it they understood, what they think they understood. They had a lived experience that would change them for life. 
And then after that, you go and you study on your level in an appropriate way. But the Fabregni was Matantayla. The Fabregni was Hakel, the king reading in the Beis Amikdash. So obviously we don't have that option available today. We don't have the Rebbe's Fabregni in 770 today. And I cannot pretend to offer such an interpretation with any type of confidence. But I'll just share with you my subjective thoughts. And if my subjective thoughts are wrong, then afterwards we'll dance and you'll, we'll have an objective experience. At least that will be right. The dancing you can't get wrong. Even if you get it wrong, it's right. Speaking, even if you get it right, it's wrong. <laughs> Especially proud of Jews. They'll always come up to you afterwards. You know what you should have said? <laughs> that was good, but you know what you should have said? Meshur Rabbeinu, when he was 120 years old, was concerned what's going to be for the Jews who didn't have the Mount Sinai lived experience. And so he instituted Hakka every seven years so that Jews should come together. Traveling is part of it, by the way. Traveling is part of the physical experience. The wear and tear that it puts on your body. That's part of the experience, you understand. And then standing there in the crowd and getting smushed, and I can't hear, I don't hear, or I hear but I don't understand, what does it mean, what's he saying? So Meishu Rebbeinu instituted Hakel, so that future generations who didn't stand at Sinai would also have an opportunity for an objective experience, upon which they could later base their subjective experience of studying Torah. But they had to have an objective experience standing together, sensorially, physically. And that was Hakil. The Rebbe, I'll just say a fact, gave us a gift. Because who in the past 2,000 years really thought that Hakel was anything more than a Jewish trivia question? It's a Jewish trivia question. In the times of the Holy Temple, what occasion was observed on the Sukkot after the sabbatical year? Oh, I know, I know, Hakel. It's a Jewish trivia question. And the Rebbe came and said, no, it's not something you know, it's something you live. The Rebbe took that right out of subjectivity and put it into objectivity. And we're going to do it every seven years. And what's more, not only we'll do it once in the year like they did in the Holy Temple, but we'll do it all year, as often as possible throughout the year. And what are we going to do? Get together Jews. Gather them together. Have an outing. 
Not a Torah class, a Torah outing. Field trip. Make up your mind. And when you have your field trip, you will not soon forget it. You'll forget what the speaker said. But you won't forget that you had an experience. So the Rebbe gave us a gift that could continue when we couldn't have the experience of the Rebbe's Fabrengen and the Rebbe being the Melech at our objective Hakel experience. The Rebbe gave us a way to have the objective experience on our own. And you know what the Rebbe did? So classically, just the Rebbe's style. The Rebbe was always about shlichus. Shliach shal adam kameisei mamish. The Rebbe was always empowering every Jew. Be like me. See what I do? Don't admire me. Like he told Gordon Sachs, what is the community benefit if I'm amazing? Don't look at me. Be like me. Act like me. So Hakil has to have a melech. Every Hakil gathering in the temple, they had the king. So if you know this, you know it. And if you don't know it, I'm sure you can figure it out pretty easily. Who, according to the Lubavitcher Rebbe, is the melech of your hakel gathering? You. You. You are the melech. Shliach shal adam kamei se mamish. The Rebbe gave you the power to be the one to facilitate an objective experience. The Rebbe gave you the power to be the Hakel king. To quote another Englishman, you gotta know your crowd. Freim Hager al Mashal said after his first Yechidus, I think he was 23 years old came out and he said, I was not properly prepared for meeting the Rebbe. I went in thinking I was going to meet a great man and I came out realizing that I had met my true self. Oh, and by the way, that was the punchline. What was the Yechidus about? I won't tell you the whole story, but the Rebbe told him to become a Rebbe. Don't be shocked. The Rebbe told everyone to become a Rebbe. The Rebbe, 1991, Shainan Abba, the Rebbe already said that he's giving every single Jew of the generation the title Rebbe. Go look it up. The Rebbe gave each and every one of us the power to be a facilitator of Matan Torah, to be a facilitator of a hakel in the Beis Hamikdash, 
to allow every kind of Jew, every level, every kind of background to come together and not just hear about Hashem, but to experience Hashem. To experience Hashem. Oh, I, I'm experiencing Hashem. I, 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 I don't feel anything. Exactly. It's not subjective, it's objective. Sometimes the most profound experience is one that you don't even adequately understand at the time. Because it's not about information. It's about being there. With your body, with your five senses. Not beholding or observing or seeing what's happening but actually becoming the event itself. To become the event itself, each and every one of us. You're part of my event. I'm part of your event. We're all part of each other's objective experience. I don't see enough smushing. <coughs> and what will happen when Mashiach comes very, very soon? All these wonderful ideas that we used to learn in Exodus as abstractions, as spiritual concepts, will become tangible. Will become tangible. All flesh will see that the world is Hashem's speech at every moment generating something out of nothing, flesh will see. And, and like the Rebbe said, not just ene basar, but basar mamash. You know the difference? Eyes of flesh means your physical eyes see it, and then your brain has to interpret what it saw. Basar mamash means you're going to touch it, you're going to feel it, you're going to smell it. It's going to be so real, you won't have to open a book to find out about it. You just look in the world and, and it's tangibly real. Your body will know. You'll know it in all your cells. You'll know it on the level of Method Haradokar, the Talmud of the Magi. He made the Aliyah, the first Hasidic Aliyah in the late 1700s. And he lived in Tveria, first in Tzfas and then Tveria. And apparently some prankster, or maybe some misguided individual, was running around Yerushalayim blowing on a shoifer and announcing the Mashiach came. And uh, started a rumor. And somebody came and they told Mendel Haradakar, he was at home. They said, in Yerushalayim, the news just reached Tveria, that Mashiach has come. So very excitedly, he got up, and he went to his window, and he opened the window, and he stuck his head out the window, and he gave a sniff of the air, and he says, oh, I'm sorry, there must be mistaken. Mashiach is not yet here. Famous question is, why did he have to go to the window and stick his head out of the window? And the answer is because in the Mendel's home, Mashiach was already there. We wanted, we wanted to find out if the rest of the world had it yet. 
But the point of the story is that for him, Mashiach was something that his senses, that his bodily senses could pick up on. It wasn't an idea. It wasn't words. It was something physical. And that's what's going to happen. We're going to see godliness. We're going to feel godliness. Torah law will become as empirically evident as natural law. Just like now, nobody disputes things like, like, like gravity. You don't walk off the cliff and you'll see there's gravity. So too, when the Mashiach comes, no one will have to be told Shabbos from reading it in a book, kashras from a book, filling from a book. You, you, you'll crave it. Your body will crave it the way you crave water and food and sleep. It'll become a biological reality, a physical reality. And even more real than the, the biological realities and imperatives that we deal with today. That's what Mashiach means. No more concepts, no more abstractions. Physical, lived, in bodies experiences. The great defender of the Jewish people, he once complained, he said, Hashem, how can you expect so much out of the Jewish people? Look what you did. You took all of the temptations of this world and you put them right in front of people's faces. And you took the truth and you hid it in old books. You should have done the reverse. You should have put the truth in our faces and then to find out about physical temptations we should be forced to go study a book. <coughs> then you would see we'd have a fighting chance. Mashiach <coughs> means... And all the beautiful ideas that are in the holy books are going to pop out of those books and become our lived experience. And it will become undeniable. And that's why Mashiach, from the Jewish perspective, is not like other religions, where it's a subjective experience, where certain people achieve enlightenment and others don't. Those who, are, who, who merit, they get to see it. Those who don't, don't. Our perfect world is an objectively perfect world, and therefore every single human being will see it, not only human beings, even animals, the wolf will lie with the lamb, and even inanimate objects, because it'll be an objective reality, not a concept, but a lived truth that you'll be able to touch. So my friends, this is how we start living that reality now, in these last moments of exile. How do we start living a Gulula reality? A Gulula reality means that God is real. Torah is real. Spirituality is real. It's empirical. It's tangible. It's, it's, it's my biological truth, not just my philosophical truth. How do we start living that way now? Get together, have a field trip, have a gathering. We have an experience that we won't forget. So now you can forget what I said. And let's soak in the incredible energy that's here, this amazing preview of the reality to come. Thank you.